Hello, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. I know we're on a few different platforms today. I've been trying to expand out and get to see all of you and bring more into the show. And thankfully, it's been working out. We came back onto Facebook and Facebook's algorithm has been allowing me to have some fun and getting the show to be seen by everyone. So I don't want to hold anything. I want to get right to the show. So here we go. Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. And today we're going to spotlight into the Empire State itself, Manhattan, with some of the most iconic labels. We're bore, dance music, hip hop, electro and all. It was coming out when, as I said, Rome ruled the world. And this man is iconic. And what I say has platinum ears, not golden ears, platinum ears, because he'll hear a record one time and know right away. That's something that should be signed. That's something that should be put out and knew how to work a record. He helped create a whole system that we all still work with today behind Dance Music Report, behind one of the most iconic seminars that came to New York after Disco Forum, New Music Seminar. And as well, helped create a record label that broke so much fantastic talent. Okay. Speaking of which, from hip hop, house music, electro, and all, created an iconic label called Tommy Boy Records. And I'm not going to say nothing more. I want to bring him right up because we got to get right into it. Tom Silverman agreed to come on. I am so proud to call him a friend. I've also worked with him on his label. And as well, he's been with me on tour dates around the world. So it's kind of amazing to have Tom, Tommy boy, Tom Silverman right here with us live. Tom, thank you. Thank you for agreeing as always. You know, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Thank you, Lenny. How are you doing before I even ask the first question? Doing good. Doing great. It's uh, it's interesting to watch the uh, what's happening to the music business today and how things are <clears throat> are in the midst of uh, massive change. But we've seen massive change before, <clears throat> so you know it's just we just don't know how it's going to play out yet. So it'll be fun to watch. Oh, um, you're watching a little from the sidelines to see what's next because uh, there's so many variables right now. Could it could go anyway? And no fear. You can't have any fear in this game. You have to just get in it. And I'm playing it still. It's like gambling. It's it's a different machine now. And you have to put aside all your analog mentality, as I call it, to deal with this digital way of life in a whole between social media, mixing the social media with the releases, because it's lifestyle brand more so than just the music, you know? Mm-hmm. From when we came up. Well, when you, I mean, you, you came before I did, so you understand it even better than I do as far as what it took to, to build an artist, build a whole release schedule to that artist and create records that were, should I say, everlasting. You know, nobody knew it better than you, especially with all the things that you've done. But I'm going to let people hear your story. So. As I say to everyone, I ask them one question, and then, of course, I guide you along the way. And 
how does music find you, Tom, as a young kid, you know, coming out of White Plains, New York? How did it find me? Oh, you I, found it. <laughs> I always loved music, you know, when I, since I heard it as a little kid on the radio, I just really loved it. And I used to listen to the radio late at night in my room and, you know, just be, became a fan of music and certain kinds of music, um, Touched me more than other kinds. More rhythmic music tend, tended to touch me, but there were different times. I was really into blues. I went through a blues phase, and I played guitar and tried to play like, you know, like Muddy Waters. But I ended up playing like Albert King. You know, I was not great, and I I would never be an Eric Clapton. So I said, well, maybe when, maybe I'll be a DJ. And when I say DJ, I mean a radio DJ, because there were no DJs yet club DJs really as a career yet. So I went to college and and worked at the radio station and was the music director of the radio station and did two radio shows. So that was kind of part of that trajectory, but always into music and always into sort of fringe music. You know, there was a radio show in New York City on WPIX, which was a rock station at the time. But on Sunday nights, there was a show by the name of Gus Gossert, this man who was a doo-wop expert, and uh, and he would do a doo-wop show, and he would put out these records on colored vinyl, uh, Gus Gossert doo-wop records, where he'd put like 11 songs on each side, you know, and uh, they'd be on different colored vinyl, and they were all obscure, rare doo-wops, and I got into the show and bought all those records and became a doo-wop fanatic, you know. So I was into blues and doo-wop, pretty much anything beyond the mainstream. Obviously, I was into rock like everybody else was into, but that wasn't deep enough. I had to really go and hear more. And most of the music that really um, connected with me was black music. So like actually... The, the White Plains was a, was a, a, about 25% black, you know, 20, 25% black, but I ran the track team, which was 60% black. So, um, you know, the people I was around were listening to music like that. Um, when I was in ninth grade, I remember going to, um, uh, they call it the hub. You'd go, you'd go at night and they have a jukebox and they'd play Motown songs and Temptations records. And, you know, I don't know what year this was, like 1967 or 66. And, you know, I got to learn really about what the kids from the streets were really into early on. And I started to get into it myself. So you've coming from basically a Motown era. Now, when you say Gus Gossett, is it kind of like Cousin Brucey in a sense? How no. he was? No, was not at all. He had one show a week. He spoke on the record, and you can hear air checks on YouTube if you ever want to check it out. Um, and he was a crazy guy. He was he ended up going to jail, and I think he got killed or died in jail. He was, you know, he was crazy. Uh he went to jail for holding gold, which was against the law at the time. You know, you weren't allowed to to um to hold and sequester gold that was just against the law it had to stay in circulation only the government could do that and uh, and he went to jail for that supposedly but who knows what else there was you know because in the world of dua there was a lot of unsavory characters um it just turned out that uh, you know the jews and italians that started the music business in in the 50s the record business i should say you right. know really um, it was by any means necessary. It was a tough business. You know, you sold 45s and they were like, you know, you're selling for like 25 cents each or something like that or less. 
So how much money were you making? I mean, you know, yeah, the artists got screwed, but everyone got screwed because it was such an unprofitable business. Everyone had to do it because they loved it. It didn't make sense. You know, you didn't get in business to rip off artists. You you got in business because you love music. No, but Morris Levy, you know. I was going to say, wait, Stan Hoffman would bring you a contract, say, sign here. Stan Hoffman, who then went on to manage boxers. Right. Another another business in that same kind of (laughs) genre. But, uh, yeah, but, you know, they love the music, you know. Morris Levy loved Latin music, you know, he started right. Tico records and he, you know, he let, they loved to dance. And it was interesting to see, you know, I mean, I wonder if there would be a music business if it weren't for the Jews and Italians and all the labels, almost all the labels in the fifties and sixties were independent. The Beatles first records were on independent labels. You know, you didn't have the dominance of the majors that you had here for the last 40 years before that. Well, because it wasn't that interesting. How much right. money can you make selling little 45s, you know? You know, okay. and the album business didn't really start till 68, you know, in, in any significant way, 69. They were out before then, but they didn't sell very much. Right. And most of it was jazz, or like you said, yeah. Latin? Mostly, and, uh, you know, at the time it was show tunes, you know, Broadway shows, actually, and sound tr- movie soundtracks is what sold the biggest on albums. And then classical and uh, and and jazz also, yeah. So then, take us from now. I understand you're the radio guy, musical director from the station, and you're starting to now come into New York to yeah. get promotional products. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to school in Maine at Colby College, which is way up in Maine, um, and um, it's a you know, the whole state of Maine pro- at the time might have had. 14 black couple, black families in the entire state. There was no record store in Waterville uh, and uh, or anything like that. So we started, uh, you know, we expanded the radio station and and we had a, we were on the top of a hill, so we got a pretty good signal. And we did some fun stuff, uh, but I did a I did a dance music uh, radio show there, a party show on. Uh, uh, Friday nights, and then I did a, a doo-wop um, and oldies show on Sunday nights, both things that nobody really appreciated there because um, it was a very small audience. The school only had 1,500, 1,600 people um, on, you know, on the campus, but the, the signal reached to, into town and it was a great place to experiment with new things without getting into a lot of trouble. Question, was it AM or FM at the school? FM, 10-watt FM. Because well, 1970, I remember when FM started. It just that was a brand new frequency, mod- frequency modulation was brand yeah, new. Ch- right. like, ones like Chicago were brand new that were pushing albums. On right. The- Actually, now that you mention it, when I got there, it was a carrier current station, so you had to, we had to have these devices in the dormitories, and you had to plug your radio in, and then it would come up on. I guess it was AM or FM then, but. We took it FM 10 watts by the time I, I was a freshman, the end of freshman year. And then the next year I became the music director and my roommate was the station manager. So we kind of controlled the radio station. We lived in a fraternity where a lot of us were DJs and we would bring bands to to Colby to perform. And, we, you know, we just m- became entrepreneurial about music. See, that's interesting. I'm glad you said that now because I wasn't sure. I'm thinking at the time because I'm looking, trying to calculate the age you are, college, and the era. 
Um, we're 72 to 76. Okay. So I'm, I'm in college. So, um, you know, I'm, and I'm going down probably by 1975. Um, every time there's a school holiday, I'm in New York. I go into the city, take the train into the city and go stop by all the rec- uh, radio record companies and get records for the radio stations. And I would get, I, you know, I'd go and pick up records. And by the end of the day, I'd be carrying them on either side. And they were so heavy that like I'd get bruises on my hips where the records were pressing down on my hips. And I had brought them just holding them like this on the train all the way back to White Plains and then driving all the way up to Colby um, to play on the radio station. So that's how we really started getting lots of stuff. And then we got notoriety because they started to know me as the guy from that radio station because every record company uh, had, uh, what do you call it, Um, uh, departments for college radio, except the smallest ones. And in those, I got to deal with the um, actual you know, heads of the label or top people in the labels because they only had 10. I'm glad you said that because every first generation DJ I know said the same thing to me. They would go up to labels and they would tell these guys, go away. Eventually, of course, Mancuso and them helped create 99 Prince Street Record Pool and all that comes later. But I was thinking they must have had a college department to help you guys out with promos. Yeah, they did. They did. And then, um, you know, and then, you know, even after the record pool thing started, you have to remember some people still came by to get records, mainly DJ Patches. For anybody in the record business will remember him. He was from Long Island. He'd knock on everybody's door and get more records. But, you know, I don't know why he wasn't in the record pool. He probably was, but he wanted more. I mean, there were a lot of vinyl junkies. Oh yeah, because we all used to do that too. We used to go run around to all labels. Hey, what you know? What new test press did you have? And of course, you want to make sure certain guys have it because of the of of the their reach with their yeah. audience to help you in promoting a record. So now here you go. So you're figuring it all out as you're in college. You're getting the stuff. Where does this time that you come into New York and the first? Forum begins, and if I remember correctly, they had the so, first disco so forum. After college, I graduated from college. Didn't think it was realistic to have a job in the music business. I I was thinking about being a radio DJ. I didn't think my voice was good enough, and I think uh, I would have to go all over the world to, you know, I'd never be settled because DJs would go to different radio stations, and you know, so I just didn't think it was a business. So I went to graduate school. In what I had gone to college for, which was environmental studies. Actually, I went to graduate school in environmental geology, and I got my undergraduate degree in environmental studies, believe it or not. Um, and then and then I went, uh, you know, so I took two years off, applied myself at school, tried to get jobs in environmental studies, got no jobs, no offers. I sent out 200 resumes, had two interviews and no job offers. Uh, this was 19... 19- beginning of 78, I get a letter from my old college roommate who was the station manager at the college radio station with me uh, and my roommate for three years. And he's a guy named Scott Anderson. And he says, uh, uh, he's working at Cashbox in LA. He's oh, doing wow. an R&B chart at Cashbox, which was like Billboard. And there were three, Billboard, Record World, and Cashbox. He's at Cashbox. And he says, disco is really starting to break. It's 78. You know, now um, Saturday Night Fever had just come out. And he said, 
let's start a tip sheet for DJs. We could make $40,000 a year. That was a huge amount of money in those times. We were hoping, you know, with my graduate degree, I was hoping to make 14000 a year the first year. And, and I got no offer. So I was really depressed. I said, listen, I have an amazing resume. If I can't even get an offer in interviews, I'm out. And I got this letter at the same time. And it was one of those Tom Cruise moments when you just have to say, what the fuck? And I said, that's it. I'm, I'm doing it. And I, I'm, I said, let's go. And we planned it. I moved to New York. I have no business experience. I rented an apartment, borrowed $5,000 from my parents and started Disco News. Uh, and Scott came later. Look at this, guys. Look at that. Thanks to Jackie McCoy. Last minute, send it to me. Jackie's all right. Yeah. <laughs> That's November. It started, I think, in August that year. It started the same month that KTU went out, signed on the air. Um, so, yeah. And we had to change the name to Dance Music Report because Disco died because of people in Chicago blowing up disco records yeah. and the Disco Sucks movement, which was really crazy and i wrote articles about it in dance music report about how uh you know seven of the top 10 records of the year were disco records they just didn't want to call them that anymore whether it was michael jackson or whatever they're all club records really um so disco never died it just changed its name to protect itself you know so we had to change our name from disco news to dance music report this is what I'm wondering. You said the Tom Cruise moment. How scared were you to take the money from your parents? Risky business? Yeah. Talk yeah. to us about that. Because people don't, you know, they see the after effect. Tom Silverman did all this. Tom, yeah. What about that moment, that Thomas Edison moment? You're creating something. What's that like? So, you know? listen, I didn't go into this with no experience. So, when I was running, so first I ran Dance Music Report. And everyone says, you crazy, why are you doing that? But pretty soon, the DJ movement started to rise. And we started in uh, North America, and we had DJs report to us. Uh, we had sort of reps all around the world, different people in different, all of the major cities in North America. Every important disco store where DJs bought their records would report to us. All of the radio stations, as they came on the air, we I would talk to those guys. So I talked to the music directors, and they'd give me the new playlist for the week, and we post the new ads, um, all kinds of things. Imports, you know, we'd identify all. Of, we talked to the people who were importers because imports in disco was really important at the time. And who's importing what? You know, all of this stuff. You know, we would give information, and of course, everything was vinyl, twelve inches, really, at the time that people were were playing, and they needed to know what to play. They also needed to know how to play it. And we gave the beats per minute for every record. And on our chart on the top 80, if you hold that up, uh, that, everybody again. we show that again. In the center, there, there's where it shows the top 80. We eventually made it a fold-out, and we put BPMs next to each one. It didn't start in, dis in the first Disco News. There was a guy in Albany, in Boston Spa, New York, named Tom Lewis, who did this thing called Disco Bible. Yes. And he'd, and he'd send out this... You'd subscribe to it for whatever, $100 a year. And once a month, he would send you a book like four inches thick, which was just a printout, like one of those green and white printouts from computers with the holes on the side that listed in alphabetical order all of the records and also in um, BPM order so you could know what would mix with what and you could plan your sets. Of course, there's none of the stuff that 
makes it easy to do that today. You know, in those days, you really had to do some homework and and some rehearsing too. Um, and you had those people who like that. Yeah, you had to rehearse to be good at what you did. That's yeah. why you became a great spinner. Did you ever DJ DJ? We know you. Yeah. Did. So in 1975, when I was in college, I started. I, when I started doing the disco show, the live disco show, I did it live remote from a club in Waterville, Maine, called the Seventh Chord, and I used two record players and I made my own mixer from Radio Shack parts without headphones, no, you know, no cueing or anything like that. Just two big attenuator knobs plugged into two record players. One was a changer and one was another record player that I happened to have because there wasn't really that much or if there was, I couldn't afford it yet. <laughs> you know, and we used to go down to Boston to hear like Joey Carvello spin at yesterday's and stuff, uh, you know, and, and so that was pretty exciting. Then Joey came up to uh, Waterville and actually moved up there and lived there for half a year DJing in one of the clubs up there. See how funny life is, everyone? Joey Carvillo goes on to work with Ray Caviano later, RFC, but this is way, way before. This is like oh, yeah. prehistoric. When he used to come in for the disco form and the New Music Seminar, he used to stay with us in in our apartment, you know? It was always fun having ha, ha, having Carvello. So you were doing live simulcasts at a time when that was like way before Disco 92, any of that happened. Way yeah. before. Yeah, an audio-only simulcast of, uh, you know, and people would listen. And, you know, uh, when that stopped, I just continued doing it from the studio. But uh, that was 75. So that's when I started spinning. It wouldn't be spinning like we knew today because I had to play like a lot of 45s. There weren't 12 inches in 75 available on most records, you know. That's right. You know, like Lady Bump, one of the first, sorry, came up as came out as a... Uh, a 45 only and then you know i think they might have done promo only penny mclean lady bump one of the early disco records but we also played you know earth wind and fire records and they were only were 45s you know you played anything that you could dance to basically that you could find and that was really true because people didn't make dance records yet they made records you could dance to and there weren't that many of them um so having a, a publication like Disco News Dance Music Report was very helpful because you didn't want to miss anything, you know, and this whole idea about major labels and independent labels, we stopped, I would go get records from all of them and anyone could have, I remember stopping at Delight Records, you know, where they had, um, and getting 45s of um, Dream in a Dream. That's right, Crown Heights yeah. Fair, yep. Uh, made, in, made in USA, you know, like really interesting records. And to me, they were exactly the same as if they had been on RCA or MCA or, or you know, Warner or, or Atlantic. It didn't matter. Um, you know, it was just a record and it was either a great record or not a great record. The company didn't matter, um, you know, to the DJs at the time and, you know, to the press at the time. I guess you could consider us media. We were press. And I was selling ads. I was laying out the publication. I was bringing... The, the newsletter to the printer to get printed and picking it up after they printed it and stapled it. And then I would bring it to all of the record stores in New York where it was sold. And we have a little stands we made where we could sell it at the record store. So all the places where DJs bought records, a few, well, one is still around. Um, can you guess which one it is, Lenny? A1, what record store one, still? A1 Records? No, that wasn't around back then. 
Oh, you talk about oh, from Blika Bob's is gone. No, no, where the DJs buy records and still that you can buy DJ equipment there. Oh, rock and soul. Of course, rock and soul. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. I think for a minute when you said DJ equipment, yeah, rock and soul. Like the oldest record store existing, you know. It's left. And, and then you know because I was writing about dance records uh, and music, and we, I had a differing opinion because Billboard had a very big disco section and they they started with this thing called the disco forum and they were doing it once a year and then they ended up doing it twice a year and they did one in chicago they did them in la but mostly they were in new york um and there was a guy who was sort of uh one of the top editors at billboard who was sort of behind this whole thing um and uh he thought that disco was a kind of music i disagreed with him i thought disco was the music that gets played in discos. So if you go to a Latin disco, that's Latin music. If you go to a Jamaican disco, it's reggae and dancehall, or maybe it wasn't dancehall yet. But, you know, whatever, depending, if, if you go to a black club in New York City, it was more soulful black R&B music. If you went to a rock club, it was rock music that you could dance to. But... They were all played in the disco. So we, in disco news, we reported on all of them. You know, we didn't think there was a record because of how it sounded that was disco. If you could dance to it, it was a record that could be played in a disco. Maybe not your disco, but a disco, some disco. But you're saying that you didn't genre it. You just said it's it. if it's played in a club, it's a disco record. Period. Right. And so when we switched to dance music report, it cleared all that up in a way because we were reporting on dance music. So... We we invented the term and trademarked the term DOR dance oriented rock. Yes, that, yes. that was ours, and we lo made a logo for it. We reviewed reggae records that were like reggae versions of Michael Jackson records or other things that were fantastic and got played in the clubs too. Well, can we can we also give Vince Aletti a little bit of a, um, a credit too because of his uh, attributes doing that? He wrote for that um, for Billboard. Yep. Not Billboard. He wrote also for Record Mirror. Record World. Record, record World. World. And he mentioned about the first disco records that they were Mancuso was playing. Yes. Well, well, the first records because Mancuso was the first D disco DJ in America, arguably. You know, so um, yes, and he didn't mix. Right. He played a record to the end, then he, and he still does. You know, to the end, he was playing a record, and people would cheer, and then he'd play another record because oh, yeah. at the time when disco started. It was really about content, not mixing. You know, mixing wasn't what defined a great DJ. Choice was, you know, what what record will he play next? Even Larry Levan. Oh, my God, he played this record. What's he going to play next? That was more important than how he played it. You know, did he do this loop and set up this crazy thing with overlays? Not. I mean, even though he had this Richard Long sound system, Richard Long, who I got to know also, did the sound system at Paradise Garage and many other places, I used to interview him for Dance Music Report. So it gave me access to everybody, to record stores, to record companies, to everybody. I, I got in the door. It was the greatest education ever. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. That's kind of like you're seeing the bones of everything because you're talking to everyone and you're also extracting their business models and seeing how they're doing what they're doing to come up with your own. Yeah. Way. It was a tough, I mean, I was making $75 a week, $60 after tax. Yeah, everybody listen to that. $75 a week after all the expenses. Oh yeah. My God. Thank How God my parents lent me $5,000. I ask you, 
How much was rent back then for your apartment in those days? 720 for a two two bedroom apartment in, on the Upper East Side. Um, and and we all lived there, the three of us that ran ran it. And uh, we had a lady that came in and we typeset it initially on a IBM Selectric typewriter. And later we got our own typesetting uh, machine and and you know, we, we, it was a little more professional, but we still ended up with film and we had to cut things out and wax them down. And I did most of that. So it was really, and I did a lot of the review writing, you know, and some articles, you know. And so one day I get this call because one of the record stores in New York City that reports to us is called Downstairs Records, Downstairs Records. It was a doo-wop store. I knew about it because being into doo-wops, it's where you go to in New York City to find doo-wops. I mean, there were a couple of uh, record stores like that, Colony Records, which was a big show tunes uh, record store up, up, uh, on the west side, you know, in the 50s. Um, but they also had all the disco records, too, and you could find sometimes doo-wops there. But the best one was Downstairs Records, and it was on the subway platform going down into the 42nd Street subway on 6th Avenue and 43rd Street is where how you'd get there. So you really had to know about this place to go there. But and they used to advertise a little quarter page, and a lot of the record stores would advertise, and that's how we would survive. You know, Prelude would take a little ad, West End would take a little ad, you know, a couple hundred dollars or whatever. But it helped pay pay the costs of of keeping it alive. Um, anyway, uh, I I get a call from them saying we're opening a new room. You got to come down. It's called the the break room or something like that. And I go down there, and it. It's a separate room that's maybe um, eight foot by 10 or 10 foot by 10, small, like a walk-in closet practically, with a table in front, records on the wall behind, and a guy that's selling records. But the records on the wall are like Scorpio by Dennis Coffey, um, Kraftwerk, uh, the Eagles, the Long Run album, mm -hmm. um, the Monkees, um, all kinds of weird things. I'm saying, what are these records? And then there's a line 10 deep of young black kids in their teens lined up to buy these records. And they're buying two copies of each one. And I'm, I said, how do you know what to buy? And they right. say, we, we buy what Africa Bambada plays. I said, Africa Bambada? Who's that? Yeah. And the guy in the store who was the guy we would get the reports from every week told me and gave me his phone number. So I called him. And went to the Bronx to hear him spin. And the rest is history, really. <laughs> but during this period of time, I always knew I wanted to start a record company. So in 1979, Rapper's Delight comes out. And it was a mindfuck, really, in the music business. Because it was so massive. And it changed everything. And everybody learned every word. And it was long. It was a long record. And everybody knew it. And we played it over and over and over again. And, and I realized this is going to be a big deal. And I said, I have to start a record company too, because if Sugar Hill can be successful with the kind of people doing the things that they might have been doing, um, if you pay the artists and you, you know, you try to do the right thing, you can only do better. Right. You know? and, uh, and, and so I felt like, hey, how bad can I do? These guys had probably the biggest record of the year had they paid off the right people, would have been the biggest record of the year in 1979, but, or at least in the top five, it didn't even probably go in the top 20 because they didn't pay off the right people. But 
That's the way Billboard was in those days. So uh, I, I started learning about business. I took a course. A, I went to the School for Entrepreneurs, and I learned about entrepreneurship. Okay. Then, I, uh, uh, then I started working for Mike Wilkinson. There was another company called um, um, DiscoNet that did disco remixes for DJs, but they were really re-edits. You know? They never got the tapes, but they took the record, and they had a couple of DJs who would go into the studio and cut the tape and cut them up and edit them into something new. And people would subscribe and get these mixes for all whatever the big records were that were coming out. Please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to. And please do not forget to follow us.